welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar Aparicio, and this week it is a Womp Womp Wednesday. I, too, have no real relationship with Russell Wilson, much like Richard Sherman. And with me, as always, with a special secret handshake for the next Mars mission, it's one of Mr. Jared Brown. Jared, how you doing? Doing well, man. We are a little delayed, but we will persist, unlike the 49ers' goal line offense. Uh, we will indeed persist because their goal line offense is uh, is not very good. We're going to persist in scoring in, I guess, the way that podcasts do. Uh, but I, I'm curious because you saw, did you see the the whole Mars handshake thing between Marquise Goodwin and Kendrick Bourne and then the, the kind of NASA scientists that co-opted their handshake when they landed a kind of rover or something on Mars? I did, yes. It was uh, obviously not as quite, uh, not as well choreographed with NASA, but saw it nonetheless. What would your end zone celebration and or handshake be? I think now that the NFL sort of loosened up the group celebration rules, I, I got to say a couple weeks ago when the Chicago Bears sort of did the little Motown Super Bowl shuffle sort of group. So I, I really got into that. I would be all about a group celebration uh, and, and likely something very similar, th- sort of theatrical and dramatic over the top. But I don't know exactly. What about you? Um, I would probably, I, it's probably reductive at this point, and, and I'm, it sucks that he took it already, but I would love to do like the salsa dance one, uh, like Victor Cruz, just because I think it's hilarious, and uh, when I played soccer, uh, there may or may not have been a salsa dance with a corner flag. <laughs> nice. Uh, and, nice. Yeah, maybe, maybe not, I'm just saying, uh, just putting that out there. Um, if anyone, all right, if so anyone's let, got the all 22 of recreational youth soccer, please look in the, look in the vault for us. <laughs> yeah, please let's uh, let's let's look at that. I'm sure that the nine zero loss against the Bellarmine Bells would be uh, would be an amazing viewing for anyone who wanted to fall asleep. Uh, but let's get into the game review because uh, yeah, this was a, a game that many thought was going to be winnable, close within maybe a score, uh, definitely maybe even within just a few points. But turns out Tampa Bay uh, definitely won and won easily. Final score uh, was well. Larger than Vegas spread. Uh, it was nine points. Nine whole points is what the Niners were able to muster uh, against that of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers who scored, well, decidedly more than that. So really the first thing that I wanted to talk about, because we've got three things on the agenda. One is schematically how the, the Tampa Bay Bucks did, especially considering their defense wasn't very good. Second, a decision point, uh, maybe a fourth down decision and breaking that down. And then third, just kind of some general notes about the game. And, and let's start... Jared with the scheme. And the question here is how the league's maybe worst defense looked, well, kind of decent because that was the story going into the game. It was the Bucks defense isn't very good. The Niners offense should be able to move the ball and that's what's going to keep it competitive. And yet the 49ers just weren't able to do that, even though they were facing a defense that was, uh, well, going into the game, not very good. That's sort of been the you know, a storyline at least of a, of this year so far that like they they do some the 49ers do some things sort of well and under control and and the game against the Raiders like you looked at that like okay the 49ers aren't a particularly competitive team but against very bad teams they seem to do fairly well and against the Giants they played fairly well too another really bad team and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers have been arguably a, wor- a more of a shit show than the 49ers this year and, and you know they're swapping quarterbacks left and right the coaching staff is totally on the hot seat and so 
this looked like a game that whether you want the 49ers to win or lose for draft sake and all of that stuff aside, this looked like a team that they reasonably should compete with. And after two weeks of no sacks of Nick Mullins and he was playing at least functioning well enough that the 49ers were scoring points and Breida's looking good and Kittle's looking good, and they go out and lay an egg against a team that's not very good, it's really hard sort of as you're trying to find these silver linings looking at a bad team, they're still sort of in this tier of bad teams that just play ugly. Yeah, well, you look at their game plan, and I think their game plan was was pretty good early on. And, and it wasn't a unique game plan. The Niners have faced a game plan like this against other defenses. But it's a game plan that works. I think early their game plan was clearly to blitz the backside of the 49ers play. And, and that was because they were expecting Shanahan to get Mullins on the move and get him in a rhythm early. And that backside blitzer really present, prevents that death by boot that kind of hard play action to the outside zone. And then Mullins moving around and getting an easy completion to George Kittle or maybe even that mid-range play. But now they're blitzing people off the edge and that's intended to stop Mullins from getting those easy completions. Okay, let's say the Niners don't actually put Mullins in a boot. Well, now, guess what? You're still blitzing. And, and usually an edge blitzer, especially off the backside, is the responsibility of the quarterback if that blitzer is coming away from the offensive line slide. So the game plan, especially early on, was to attack what they thought Kyle Shanahan was going to do to get their quarterback in rhythm. And even if that wasn't the case, they were still going to send extra pressure at Mullins, kind of banking on the fact that when someone who doesn't get a lot of reps feels a lot of pressure, he begins to crumble. And that's exactly what the the game plan was. It worked to a great effect. And outside of a couple of drives, the Bucks were able to to ride that game plan to success. They were, I think this was the first time, you know, and obviously Nick Mullins doesn't have a tremendous amount of starts, but this was, this really highlighted sort of his uh, deficiencies, at least early on in his career. You see, or rather saw a quarterback that the, what the Bucks were doing is not terribly innovative. It's not, uh, you know, Overly, it's not over the top. It's not some, in, you know, some crazy genius scheme that the 49ers, Kyle Shanahan, that many coaches and, and staffs and even players aren't prepared for, or haven't seen. And so Nick Mullins and really the offense as a whole, their inability to deal with it is a little concerning in the fact that it was a fairly simple sort of game plan that worked well. The Bucks executed it well, but it's nothing that is uh, tremendously over the top. And the 49ers' offensive line, as well as Nick Mullins, just seemed to. F- struggle to really deal with it in any regard and especially early in the game when Kyle Shanahan is so good you know particularly those first the first drive or two when Kyle Shanahan seems to really because of his preparation and understanding schematically being able to to sort of manipulate teams early on the 49ers just didn't have that sort of opening punch that they normally do and and when they eventually sort of start to fall down or you know are are down to teams even that aren't good like the Buccaneers you can tell that the they just struggle to continue to uh to hang in there and this is the first time that I think we saw at least in Nick Mullins case uh, him looking sort of woefully unprepared which again it has to sort of temper expectations given where he was drafted or rather not drafted and you know his his sort of entrance into the league and, and, and within the 49ers uh, organization, but he is expecting to, you know, or is expected to play like an NFL passer. And at least early on when that pressure came uh, against a Bucks defense that doesn't pressure particularly much at all, the 49ers didn't seem prepared. 
Yeah, you know, I think when you look at the, what the Bucks did going into the game, they, they came into the game blitzing just 23% of the time, and yet against the Niners, they blitzed on 11 out of the 36 passes. That's 30.5%. That's a pretty significant uptick compared to their season-long blitz going into the game. And, and behind that, they played a lot of man coverage, and man coverage has been something the 49ers have had trouble defeating all year, even when Jimmy Garoppolo was the quarterback. And I think when you've got Dante Pettis and Kendrick Bourne, and, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about Pettis later in the show, but when you got those two wide receivers, they're both relatively unproven. And so you think to yourself, okay, you can probably cover those wide receivers. And they doubled the hell out of Kittle often. And so you think, yeah, we can probably get away with man coverage. And they did see a slight uptick in their percentage of man coverage. They played man coverage 37.5% against the Niners, which is up from their average going into the game, which was 31, or not their average, but how the percentage of their man defense, which is 31.3%. So that was their their overall game plan, and it worked. And, and I think, like you were saying, Nick Mullins just didn't play well. Previously, in previous games, Nick Mullins was able to take what the defense gave him and, and keep the team at least relatively on schedule um, and not take sacks, not put the team in an unfavorable position. And yet, against the Bucks, he was not able to do that. There was not a single split where he graded out positively for Pro Football Focus. If you look at Pro Football Focus's charting, they break out kind of the, the quarterback performance against pressure uh, when they're in a clean pocket, when they're not blitzed, uh, and then when they're blitzed. There's not a single split out of those four categories where Nick Mullins had a grade over 45.8. A reminder that this is a scale out of 100. I mean, we're talking about like Jordan Devy performance level at quarterback. Actually, I'm not sure that Jordan Devy would have graded worse as a quarterback if he were to have taken snaps under center because that's how bad Nick Mullins' grades were. I mean, he was missing wide receivers. He was missing players that were open. He was not reading blitzers on the backside when they were running free. The unblocked pressures left and right. And even when there were plays where he would slide well in the pocket, where he would move and dip his shoulder, and then he would just throw the ball, and it would be wildly inaccurate. This was a game where we saw you know, kind of the worst of Nick Mullins. And, and I think it was in large part because of pressure and because of what the, the, the game plan was for Tampa Bay going in, which was clearly to uh, rattle Nick Mullins and cover the wide receivers one-on-one. The 49ers, you know, Kendrick Bourne, at least early on, his game is not like one-on-one separation. He's you know, a, big, a bigger body relative to some of the other receivers that they have, and he's more of the sort of garçon mo, you know, uh, figure in terms of body type and, and really even play style. He's not going to like – he's not – you know, doesn't have tremendous speed, decent route runner, but he's not going to shake guys. So when you get him in man coverage, that's obviously, you know, that, that's a loss for the 49ers in terms of, uh, you know, talent and skill set advantage against most, you know, cornerbacks in the league. That's just not where Bourne's going to win. When you have Pettis on the other side, who is a good route runner, has good speed, but no good win on the field. George Kittle's being doubled. Pettis becomes sort of the next immediate threat there. It just there's just not enough there for the 49ers to to really work with. Nick Mullins splits particularly, and it, what concerns me the most is that, as you mentioned, there's not a single one of them that was over 45.8. So that doesn't mean you know it's not like he, he was horrible in in this category and good in that right earlier in the year we talked about particularly along the 49ers offensive line that they were struggling to sort of put it together individually and have kind of a a sustained performance among the entire offensive line and you know those individual grades collectively were bringing down the 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 group as a whole because you never knew who was going to do what each week but 
usually you were getting one guy that did well and one guy that whatever, right? And so in some cases, that sort of stuff balances out, particularly in, in the case of pro football focus and the way that they grade because they do split things up so uh, in, into so many categories based on so many different uh, levels of or sort of uh, context situational stuff on the field. You, you are able to sort of flesh out more, uh, you know, sort of a more accurate look at how a quarterback played. And Nick Mullins, in, in any of the situations or sort of context that PFF is looking at how he did, particularly in regards to pressure, in none of those cases did he do well. And that's concerning that it's not that he didn't do very well against pressure, but played phenomenally from the pocket. And so the 49ers were hanging. I mean, Across the board, pressure or no pressure, regardless of how the offensive line seemed to be doing or what sort of rhythm and timing he would have in the pocket, he just didn't play well. And I think this is another reminder that, at least in regards to Kyle Shanahan, because his name, you know, with the losses and and a season that just hasn't gone like people had hoped, his name is going to continue. And I think Robert Sala as well, their names are going to be continued every week, fair or not. Are they on the hot seat and all of those cliches? But this is a guy who's trying to make his offense work with a third string quarterback undrafted, you know, essentially still a rookie and and the 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 quarterback, the person under center is just not as good as you'd hope and he's just not what the 49ers needed from what they expected, you know, their starting quarterback to do and so they're going to have to one way or another uh, sort of keep this boat afloat and it looks like it may not be with Nick Mullins at least sort of carrying them like we originally expected. Yeah, I think overall, when when you look at what Nick Mullins did, I think that his performance in a clean pocket is what worries me the most because every pressure is going to affect every quarterback. It really is, and and even makes good quarterbacks look not so good. And and what worried me with Nick Mullins was that even with a clean pocket, he didn't look all that great. And and I think if he can bounce back, and and this is kind of his low point, I think that's good. We we have to measure Nick Mullins not against a starter or against an NFL kind of top fifteen quarterback. You've really got to measure him against you know basically quarterbacks 40 through 33 because he is a backup quarterback he doesn't have the arm strength of the skill to take a team and have them make a playoff push and so I think the first two games Nick Mullins graded out as like yeah he's a decent backup quarterback uh, especially as an undrafted free agent this game he looked like someone who is not going to be in the NFL very long and I'm curious to see what happens this week against the Seattle defense in Seattle where all, it's basically been a wasteland for 49ers quarterbacks recently. So I think really you can explain the game away in, in the flip side, which is what happened with the other quarterback under pressure, and that's famous Jameis. Jameis Winston, he was not bad under pressure. Uh, under pressure, he was 10 for 15 for 172, 172 yards and two touchdowns. He was actually better under pressure than he was without pressure, mostly because of his ability to create outside of the play structure. And, and I know that sometimes football can get really, really complicated and there can be lots of nuance. But I think really what defined this game was a pretty decent game plan from the, the Tampa Bay defense, the inability for Nick Mullins to create under pressure, and then famous Jameis just finding a way to work outside of a play structure to keep drives alive long enough to score some points for an offense that's actually pretty good. They are when they're on the the Tampa Bay Buccaneers can can dominate. I mean, Mike Evans is still you know, arguably a top ten receiver in the league, regardless of who's behind. And, I mean, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, at least early, at least thus far in the season, that's a that's a fantasy offense you want. They always throw for a ton of yards, even in garbage time. I don't time. think they it's even arguable. I think I don't it's, even think it's arguable. I think Mike Evans is most definitely top ten. Um, I mean, <laughs> after you get out of the outside of like the 
Odell Beckham's and the uh, uh, the Antonio Browns, AJ Green, Julio Jones. Like he he's like I would say touching like top five. Um, I mean he's he's damn good. I think. I think he is too. I think his biggest problem is that he plays in Tampa Bay and he plays with a quarterback carousel and with an offensive co- uh, offensive coach Dirk Cotter as a head coach that just doesn't seem to. I don't know, like they don't seem particularly uh, creative with him, and and maybe that you know I mean they get an up close look at his skill set, but it's like he he kind of is a one trick guy. I mean his one trick of of beating you deep with size and speed is pretty impressive, but yeah I I, I would say he's got to be in the top ten, right? It's like Julio Jones, Antonio Brown, DeAndre Hopkins, AJ Green. You're right. Oh yeah, he, he I might even be pushing. Top. I forgot Nook. No, I, I think even, if you put Nook in there, then he's clearly I think in the top ten, but I, he's he's not top five for me because DeAndre Hopkins for me is is. He, I mean, Hopkins is ridiculous, but yeah. Um, let's get to a, a decision point in the game because some of Kyle Shanahan's fourth down decision making has come under fire, especially from fans, and and of course because of the Super Bowl, especially he's gotten the rap as not being a coach that can close out games or a, a coach that gets tight in fourth quarter situations. And and there was a, a fourth down call in this game, fourth and sixth in the third quarter. The Niners are driving. The game is still close, and they they get down to the one yard line. Now, of course, the Niners got the ball back. The game is still close, and they have failed attempts to punch it in from the one, and then they get a false start, and they go down to the six. And, and my question to you would be just kind of gut instinct right away. What did you think when you saw that play happen live? Were you just like, go for it? Or were you like, oh, no, they got the penalty. You might as well kick the field goal. Gut instinct, I thought, go for it. And I thought Kyle Shanahan would, too. Up until that point, at least in the in that drive, I thought the 49ers had shown that they were relatively effective. I thought Kyle Shanahan had shown really up until those two goal line carries that he was being sort of creative offensively and, and even utilizing guys like Jeff Wilson effectively. So I thought, go for it. And particularly with a bad team in a losing season, like the 49ers season wasn't on the line right there. So at some point, you know, in terms of boosting morale and stuff, like I, I think, you know, a little bit of aggressive play call sometimes guys rally around that I was actually rather surprised they didn't go for it I I I believe it or not I wasn't um if you look at the math on that decision and I think I wasn't surprised but I still think it was the wrong decision as the math would say if you look at at the the decision in a vacuum Brian Burke who has done a lot of work for I think football I think his site is like football analytics or football analysts or something like that but he did a he created a fourth down bot for the New York Times, and it hasn't been updated since like 2013. But the underlying math is still accurate. And what it does is it takes expected points added and success rate into account when making the decision to go for it. And they use data from 2002 to 2013 to figure out when coaches should and shouldn't go for it. They have this really, really neat interactive chart. And based on their, their math, on fourth and sixth from your opponent's six-yard line, the math says to go for it. The idea is twofold, right? The idea is that you're going to, over time, get more points if you end up going for it because, you know, you're going to score a touchdown or you're going to give the ball back to the team, but you're going to give it to them with 94 yards to drive, which means that they're likely not going to score points. You're likely going to get the ball back back with positive field position. Um, and, And, of course, then the flip side is if you go for it and you get it, then you have six points, and that's much more valuable than than the three points if you're kicking a field goal. So the math said go for it now. There's actually a fun fact when I was doing research for this. The idea of expected points was created by Virgil Carter in 1971. Jared, why else is Virgil Carter famous? That's a great... I have absolutely no idea. This is like deep pocket football trivia right here. Virgil Carter was the noodle-armed quarterback 
that Bill Walsh oh, developed right. the West Coast offense for. That's right. I should know that. I'm in the middle of Bill's book right now. That's gr- I should have known that. That's gross. Yeah. So he, I mean, he's he was a BYU quarterback in the in the late '60s, and in 1971, he wrote a paper, a peer-reviewed paper that introduced the idea of expected points. And now, of course, expected points is used in, in all manner of things, um, and, and including in the the coaching metrics that we talked about with George Shahuri a couple weeks ago on that bonus episode in, in measuring coaching success. But I thought that was an interesting, just little kind of historical tidbit. I was like, hey, what the hell? Um, but the one thing the formula doesn't take into account, and this is, I think, where you get into the nuances of decision-making, is it doesn't take team-specific items into account. So with, with two equal teams where everything is equal and there's no weather, you're in a dome, there are no injuries, the, the math says to go for it. But then you start introducing variables like, okay, what if their defense is significantly better than ours? What if we're going against the 1985 Bears defense? What if our offense is incredibly strong? What if we have a Hall of Fame quarterback in Julio Jones? Those are going to tilt whether or not you go for it or don't go for it. What if it's snowing? What if you're in the cocaine game that Buffalo seems to play <laughs> in at least once every couple of years? Um, whether or not your starter is injured, like, or what if your kicker's injured? You're gonna go for, you're gonna kick the field goal, but then you're like, mm, you know what? Our kicker's injured, and our punter isn't really a good field goal kicker, so we should probably go for it. All of those things weigh into and kind of tilt one way or the other. And I think what goes into Shanahan's mind, and this is why I wasn't surprised they didn't go for it, is he's looking at his offense, and he's saying, man, you know what? We've had trouble going for it. We've had trouble moving the ball consistently against this defense, irrespective of where they were ranked coming into the game. I've got an undrafted free agent quarterback who I know his limitations. I've got Marquise Goodwin out. I've got Pierre Garcon out. I've got maybe Matt Breida, but at, at fourth and six, I'm not going to run the ball necessarily with Matt Breida. I would have run it. He would have gone for it fourth and one, and he would have ran it, but they got the false start. So I think all those things go into it, and, and he ends up, and he's like, you know what? I, I don't trust this offense enough to go for it, so I think the safer play here or what's going to actually get me more points is the field goal. Um, and that's why I'm not too mad at the decision. Um, not, not just because it gets us closer to the first overall pick, but because I think the math says go for it. But I think Kyle Shanahan and, and all the other non-math factors go into it to him saying, eh, you know what, I'm not going to do that. And he was a more aggressive coach in Atlanta. And I think with a better offense, he becomes more aggressive. That's a good point that sort of the, the personnel, at least of the 49ers at the time of going for it is not, not at all what Kyle Shanahan likely envisions on a fourth and six on the goal line. For the sake of dialogue here, let's swap out. Uh, you can swap out Jimmy Garoppolo for Nick Mullins. Do you go for it? Well, I think the question is not whether I would go for it because I would have gone for it even if the Niners uh, didn't have uh, Garoppolo. I don't know that I would punt a whole hell of a lot once I got near like my own 40-yard line. Um, I, I prefer the Mike Leach kind of worldview, which is like, you know what, just throw it. <laughs> it's at that point like, hey, I'm an NFL head coach. I don't know how I got here. I'm just going to go YOLO and and just figure out what the hell's going on. I, I think the real question is, should Shanahan have gone for it if everyone was healthy? If Garoppolo were healthy, if McKinnon were there? Um, it, I think that's where I would start to worry if he's got all the pieces there and he still makes a similar decision. But this this season is... You know, it, it's a shitty season because we can't really evaluate him with the full complement. We've got to evaluate him with, uh, you know, his right hand and, you know, his left leg tied behind his back. And and that's what sucks about really evaluating him as a coach. And that's why I'm not terribly concerned. I think next season, if we see these kinds of decisions, then yeah. 
But I think up to now, yeah, I totally understand the logic and, and I'm not too concerned. I will say that he, you said, you know, he's, he's sort of coaching here with a, a hand and a, and a leg tied behind his back. And in some ways, the 49ers are, are you know, sort of, quote, for, I'm using 49ers here now to talk about the players specifically. They are, are doing this to Kyle Shanahan. And, and I don't mean that in like a, you know, sort of a vindictive way, but the fourth and one carry on the goal line, you know, your playbook, you've got a lot of uh, potential for creativity there. And you know that Kyle Shanahan can, you know, in terms of, of mind, creatively can do a lot on offense and the 49ers at least with fourth and one you feel you feel okay about your opportunity to score there regardless of the previous two carries and their inability to get it in and then George Kittle gets the false start and it pushes back to fourth and six and you sort of look around I am imagining Kyle Shanahan sort of looking around like geez we can't we can't get a break and quite frankly the 49ers they're not a good enough team to do this to themselves you know good yeah. teams can get away sometimes get away with it sometimes with sort of playing undisciplined and not really executing in these critical moments, the bad teams definitely can. And in some ways, that's good because, like you said, the 49ers are closer to the first overall pick. And in some ways, you'd like to see it go differently. You'd like to see your potential all-pro tight end not false start on the goal line and instead be a, you know, be a more impact uh, player right there. And, and uh, so in many what sucks ways... In, in that, what sucks in that case is that it was George Kittle who got flagged. But it was Joe Staley who actually. It was flinched. he got that he got that little yeah Joe Staley got yeah that flinch, so Joe which, Staley uh, flinched and then Kittle went off of that flinch and and I, you know I I think I think it made a lot of sense to run because that's the Niners' strength that's what they do very very well that's I mean they're in the top ten in the league in terms of rushing offense that is their strength and if I'm Shanahan I'm running the ball too running the ball isn't one of the more effective plays in football but when you're in short yardage situations that is where it does pay to be able to run successfully and so if if I am hanging my hat on the 49ers run game which is the one thing they're going to do well this season then hell yeah I'm going to run the ball in fourth and one and third and one and maybe even second and one um and, and so I totally get it and I think you're absolutely right that this is a team that just can't overcome those types of penalties at least not yet and and they found themselves in that situation deep in the red zone on a drive that really kind of, you know, changed the game. Because I think after that, it, it was you saw a little bit of air go out of the team. And, yeah, and, and that's exactly from what I was there, say. Yeah, and from there, you know, it just it was it was a little bit downhill. But let's get to the, the general thing that we observed. And, and I think it was very clear, especially early on or even early on that the Niners were in eval mode for this game. Uh, Kyle Shanahan's made no secret that this season is about seeing who's going to be here next season. I think it's a good way to kind of finish out the year. Um, but even early on, the, the Niners played uh, their players that were young and that probably needed to see some snaps and get evaluated against starters. Tarverius Moore got some snaps. Julian Taylor got 17 snaps, mostly as an edge defender. Solomon Thomas played 22 snaps along the interior. That's a quarter of his season's interior snaps in this game against Tampa Bay. The team is clearly looking at some of their young pieces, and they got them some playing time early. And you know what? Hell yeah, dude. I'm happy about that. Let's do that. Let's do more of that um, because I think that's what this team needs to do right now. Earlier in the year, I, I really started, you know, sort of discussing this point or, or really thinking about this sort of stuff almost. Very, very shortly after Jimmy Garoppolo went down, because at that point, I think many people realized, OK, this this season, at least in terms of some of the aspirations that this team had, or at least the fan base had, were sort of going, you know, rapidly going downhill post Jimmy Garoppolo injury. And so my, 
you know, the sort of thinking was with guys like Tarverius Moore, get him on the field, Julian Taylor, get him on the field because you're not sure at least along the D line, like who's gonna who's gonna be here. There was some I, I mentioned a little bit of Ronald Blair seeing the field more than Cassius Marsh in terms of uh, edge edge pass rusher, and it you know. I don't, I'm not sitting out here like rooting for grown adults to lose their jobs, but at the same time, it's about time. And and finally, it's it's a nice sort of uh, it's nice to see the recognition from Kyle Shanahan, and he he had the discussion with the team before the bye week that they're now starting to look around at, at players and legitimately evaluate them for. Uh, for next year and whether those players are going to be part of this plan and, and what they uh, want to do moving forward. It's nice to see that recognition and, and not necessarily bowing out or, or you know giving up, but at the same time, some honesty and self-awareness to say, look, this team is not in a position to really compete this year, but we have some specific players on this roster and beyond the ones you listed, guys like Marcel Harris, some of these players that they need to see play and they need to legitimately evaluate these guys for two reasons. One, because on the field, obviously, it would be nice to see, you know, in terms of talent and skill set, how these guys do. But number two, the 49ers have some contract decisions coming up at, at quite a few levels on the field, uh, as particularly on their defense, the defensive line. They've got a linebacker and a sort of decision to make with Malcolm Smith. They've got some defensive back decisions to make with Jukwiski Tart and Jimmy Ward. And if they can get some of these young guys on the field to evaluate them specifically see in terms of skill set and talent, can they compete? And beyond that, how can we, in terms of contracts and financially, continue to construct this roster? It might change how they, uh, how they, and how they interact or, or how they address the offseason. They could take this in quite a few directions. They could take this sort of the, the direction of the Los Angeles Rams, who have a young rookie quarterback on a cheap contract and so have bought the rest of their team. And obviously the 49ers have Jimmy Garoppolo, and, and that contract is pretty hefty. But they've got Brita, who looks to be phenomenal in a legitimate starting NFL running back. They've got Dante Pettis, Kendrick Bourne, Trent Taylor, Fred Warner, Solomon Thomas, DeForest Buckner, Akella Witherspoon, Adrian Colbert. So you're looking at a bunch of guys with cheap contracts at the 49ers. They need to see which of these cheap contracts are legitimate starters and where do we need to go get starters? And if so, at those spots, can we go spend some legitimate money? But it was nice to see that sort of evaluation being played out on the field. And it's hard because the 49ers coaching staff obviously has time with these guys in practice and they're doing some evaluating there that, that you know, general fans don't get to see. But it's nice to see it on the field, on a game day, on a Sunday against NFL competition and see where these guys stack up at least right now in the beginning of their careers for many of them. You know, Julian Taylor, who I know is a fan favorite, he had a pretty solid game. He had 17 snaps and, and he had a very good game against the run. Not so great against the pass, but you know what? If you're looking at maybe the replacement for Eric Armstead, that, that may be a place to look. Tarverius Moore allowed one reception on his lone target. So I had, you know, not a great day, but... Uh, he looked, you know, like he had some pretty quick feet against super limited snaps. But these are the kinds of things that, that you want to see. Solomon Thomas had two hurries in 20 pass rushes along the inside about, you know, just a little better than average in terms of that regard. So I think I would love to see the team do that more and more and more. Uh, and I hope that they do. Uh, and so, you know, that's that is, I think, something that carries on into into future games. Now, I mentioned Julian Taylor, and he is a fan favorite, and he's kind of another one of those edge defenders that, that may be good. And, and one person, and this is going to be our spotlight player for this week, that played a phenomenal game that also is an edge defender is going to be one Mr. Eric Armstead. 
Eric Armstead had a fantastic game against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and it was largely on the back of his run defense. He was consistently disrupting plays in the backfield. And he was, even if he wasn't making the tackle, he was forcing the running back to stutter and move around him and then get gobbled up by the other defensive lineman that was in the area. And, and Armstead, over the year, has performed very, very well. If you look at just edge defenders, his run defense grade on the year is third overall. It drops down to 14th overall when you look at the defensive lineman as a whole, both interior players and edge defenders. And, and this was the player that we thought we would get when we drafted him. He's playing the best football of his career. He hasn't had grades this high since he was a rookie. And of course, he's been dealing with injuries the last couple of years. So Eric Armstead looks like he's finally filling in to this first overall pick kind of play, especially as a run defender. And my question to you is, he played a great game. He is good at stopping the run. But is that enough to re-sign him to basically a longer-term deal than just his, his fifth-year option? Because the team's already picked that up. They're in if they keep him next year for 9 mil. Uh, but is he worth that? And if so, is he worth an extension? I definitely don't think he's worth $9 million. And this is where the 49ers evaluation and, and some of what they do financially is going to have to be pretty and is going to have to be on point because the next contract or at least the next, you know, sort of salary that he's going to get is that fifth year option for 9 million. And after that, he's going to be looking for a second contract, whether with the 49ers or another team. And the problem is that the 49ers, I'm not saying that they've set his market at 9 million because I don't think he's going to get that from them. I don't know that he should get that from them or any other team, but it's going to, I think they, they lose a little bit of leverage here because he has played particularly well this year. They picked up his option really before this year, which makes it almost even more tricky because like if they're going off previous evaluation, they say, okay, like we'll pick him up for that fifth year option and see what happens. And they have to do that before he actually plays his fourth season, which is this one. Now he's playing this fourth season and playing at the best, you know, sort of the best level of his career, at least since he's been a rookie. And we're sort of really maybe finally seeing that development. They lose a little bit of that that leverage for a new contract after that fifth season because, as of right now, sort of what they're giving him, the evaluation was based on worse play than he's playing now. And obviously, the sort of years and the, and the initial rookie contract that was set up, sort of you can't you can't really change when that fifth year comes up and and the timing that the NFL sets. But but he's getting nine million after you know arguably one good season. What we are seeing is that he can be a very, very good run defender. And as you said, he was consistently in the backfield. I like to say resetting the line of scrimmage, which is not just sort of stonewalling at the line of scrimmage, but really even pushing a yard or two in back, into the backfield, running backs struggling to really uh, hit the gaps like they'd like to, getting laterally before they even get to the line of scrimmage. And whether he's making the play or not in terms of like tackle numbers, he is directly affecting the 49ers overall run defense. However, looking around the league at teams like the Saints and the Rams and the Chiefs and like the teams that the 49ers are probably going to be trying to compete with a Super Bowl for the next two or three years, and I'm not saying the 49ers for sure are, but those three teams look like they will be for sure. I don't know that having like a, a legitimate run defender that can't really be a great edge pass rusher is what the 49ers need because of what else yeah. they have on the defensive line and, and their other needs. Like it's a very, it's going to be a very interesting uh, uh, sort of evaluation like, relative to contract NFL trends and the NFL landscape and, and the 49ers defensive front. 
Well, I think you hit the nail on the head there when you're talking about whether or not that position is valuable. And, and I think there's there's two things that you have to think about when extending someone who is primarily a good run defender and maybe just a slightly above average pass rusher, especially when that pass rush is from the interior and not the edge. And that's the scarcity of the skill and whether or not that skill impacts the, the modern NFL and today's NFL. I think I, I did a kind of really, really quick, just back effectively back of the napkin math to see how scarce good run defenders are as compared to good pass rushers. And what I did is I went back and I looked at the number of players who graded an above average grade in, uh, for Pro Football Focus's grading for both pass rushing and run defense. And I went back to 2013. And in 2018, so far, of course, not a complete season, but there are 54 above average run defenders uh, that are edge players. This is just specific to edge players, not defensive linemen as a whole, just specific to edge. In 2017, there were 56. 2016, there were 35. 2015, there were 35. 2014, there were 52. And 2013, there were 55. So basically, the average is somewhere between, it's somewhere in like the, the high 40s in terms of players that are good at defending against the run. Now, when you take kind of edge rusher or pass rusher and you look at the numbers, you're looking at 38, 50, 36, 35, 30, and 30. So just really just at, at a very, very basic level, if you're not doing too much statistical analysis, there are more often players that are good on the edge at defending against the run than there are at rushing the passer. And what the Niners need more of right now is someone who's good at rushing the passer because they have players, like you said, that can be good run defenders. Solomon Thomas is a good edge run defender. And so if you're looking at, okay, well, who does what Armstead's going to do? Not Solomon Thomas can do it. Julian Taylor, in a very limited sample size, had a good one game. And if he can continue to develop, then, hey, you continue to play him there. The Niners, I think, or Armstead, I think, is good at something that is no longer scarce or as scarce as pass rushing is in the NFL, and that's defending against the run. And defending against the run is not nearly as valuable as stopping the pass. And so I think at $9 million, the Niners can spend that money wisely elsewhere, given what they have on the roster. Um, and, and that doesn't mean that Armstead's a bad player. He'll probably go somewhere else and have a great year or, or a great career. Uh, but I just don't think the Niners should extend him in San Francisco, given what it is that he does well. So in, in addition to that, too, like there's only so many good, you know, you can only have so many guys on your D line. Where you're like, that guy's a real stud run defender before teams are just going to go great. You've got all your good run defensive, run, you know, your run stopping defensive linemen out here. We're just going to do nothing but throw the ball all over the field. You know, I mean, yeah, like, at some point there has to be, there has to be a very, thing in the NFL. There needs to be variance in the group, and I think that might be what we're seeing at least over the last couple of years. Like as the real downfall of the 49ers is not so much that the players that they have are really bad. And DeForest Buckner is obviously a very good player. Eric Armstead is a good player. Solomon Thomas, when he's on and when he's playing in the right position, is a good player. The problem is there's just not a lot of variance in this group, and and they they need to find that somehow. And I don't know that paying Eric Armstead nine million to do it, in addition to like if it's just a one year thing. Like, I don't know that that's worth it. All right, let's get to the rundown because there are a couple of midweek stories that are kind of important, one of which didn't even start midweek. It started before the game. Reuben Foster, the era is over before it ever really started. Uh, the team effectively had to release him after another accusation of domestic violence, and it happened at the team hotel. Again, at the team hotel with the same woman who admitted to in a court of law uh, basically perjuring herself and and lying to police, well, I guess lying to police isn't perjury, but she lied to police to ruin his career 
And yet he was cool hanging out with her in the team hotel. And, and so the team did what they needed to do. He has since been released. And now he is a member of the Washington controversies. Um, I want your 30 second reaction. Cause I think that's all this deserves. Give me your 30 seconds. Go 30 second reaction. This is just, it's just an absolutely boneheaded decision. And I think that's really the issue. It's so easy. It seems so easy for fans to kind of get caught up in the, you know, the innocent before proven guilty and all of those dumb law cliches that we sort of throw out. And I am by no means saying let's just arrest random black men and put them in jail. I am, however, saying that the 49ers gave Reuben Foster very specific instructions. And we don't know exactly what those were, but I'm sure that John Lynch and Kyle Shanahan told them very specifically that he needed to show better decision making and he needed to show better judgment. And he needed to show, I think, more than anything, that the 49ers and playing football was his focus and that he was going to do the difficult work that it took to keep his life on track, and he didn't. And that's the problem, whether whether he actually had an altercation with this girl and whether there was actual, whether physical or verbal assault, whatever it is, the 49ers gave him clear directions and he showed bad decision-making again. And whether it's now or later, that pattern hasn't improved and there's no reason to expect it in, to improve. And so whether he's fine this time or not, there's inevitably going to be a next time and a next time. And the 49ers, they, they're trying to build something. You got to get this sort of stuff out of the organization. You can only tolerate it for so long. So I absolutely agree with what they had to do. I hope that, you know, for Ruben's sake, that off the field, he cleans his life up and figures some of that stuff out. But the 49ers can't, can't enable this anymore. I agree wholeheartedly. I think you said it there at the end is I think, you know, sometimes people hit rock bottom and that makes them realize, oh, shit, I have to change. And hopefully this is that moment for him. I hope that he never has and never will even ever again consider putting hands on a woman. I, I hope that he has a, a great career somewhere else where he doesn't have to worry about this kind of stuff hanging over him. But I do think, just like you said, it was time for the Niners to move on. This wasn't this isn't a court of law. This is not a oh, innocent to proven guilty. This is a job, folks. You don't have to the, the jobs don't have the, the legal standard of, you know, proof uh, beyond a reasonable doubt before they have to fire you. You just have to not do your job well. And one of unfortunately, one of the things in the NFL that you have to do well is, well, not get arrested, whether or not you did it or not. And that's unfortunate. And I think Kyle Shanahan said it best. It was just a collection of poor decisions. It wasn't about whether or not he hit this woman in this instance. It was this was a bad decision. Bringing this woman to the team hotel the night before a game was a bad decision. Getting into whatever altercation you got into where she called the cops on you was a bad decision. And that collection of bad decisions, in addition to all the other stuff, was enough to get you cut. So he's someone else's problem now at this point. I wish him well. Adios, my friend. Now we have to remove like rule number eight from the drinking game. And off we go. But Jimmy Ward fractured his forearm. Apparently, the 49ers need to give their players more milk because at least the safeties anyway, uh, because this is now the third time that a safety has broken his forearm twice for Jimmy Ward on the same forearm. Uh, I don't know if he like, just tackles like with his forearm or what, but um, but yeah, he's he's done for the year. The team signed Godwin, uh, and this is going to be a name check. I want to hear you pronounce this name. Uh, it, it's Godwin Igwebuike. That's my that's my pronunciation. What do you got? Yeah, I would agree. I think Igwebuike. Yeah, but, Igwebuke. You're just going to ignore the eye. I get it. Yeah, ignore the uh, eye. I mean, it's a, it's a silent eye. <laughs> it's, a, <laughs> it's a silent eye. I like it. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we're going to go with uh, Godwin Igwebuike. Uh, yeah, let's just go with that. that I think uh, that's he's reasonable. an undrafted yeah. free agent. Yeah. yeah. Undrafted free agent from Northwestern. He, of course, is the sixth most, athlet, sixth most athletic safety in this year's draft class. That's the trend. 
with 49ers when it comes to taking flyers on players that they might want to develop is athleticism. Clearly, the, the team values it. And Godwin has it in spades. So he was ranked the 14th best safety by PFF this preseason. Uh, this is a quote from their scouting report. He's got good speed at the top of routes, tied for the national lead with eight pass breakups in 2017. He finished his career with seven interceptions and 18 pass breakups on just 163 targets. He's a playmaker with athleticism. Uh, he was a better run defender than he was a coverage defender, which you know is not maybe necessarily what the Niners need, but he's a developmental player. He's not someone who's going to come in and compete for starter reps right away, but he's someone maybe the Niners can stash with some talent and some athleticism that they could develop into at the very least a special teamer, if not a role contributor. I think this move obviously is, you know, a natural reaction to Jimmy Ward. And first and foremost, I think he's played his last downs as a 49er. And and that career obviously hasn't gone the way that the 49ers scouting department and evaluation department, at least that was here when Jimmy Ward was selected, obviously hasn't gone as, as well as whoever was involved in making that decision had hoped. And I think from fans' perspective, it's too bad for Jimmy. He's dealt with routine injuries and whether you throw out cliches like injury prone and whatever else is involved, like this is a guy that is, has tried to make a living doing something that he was told by many people he's good at, and he just hasn't done very well doing that. And much of that is because his body just hasn't held up, and that's, that's too bad for he him. He can't help the fact that his dad is the glass man. I mean, look, Samuel yeah. Jackson's had a lot of kids, okay? It yeah. doesn't matter that he's in a wheelchair. It doesn't matter. You know, you could still work if he's in a wheelchair, yeah, class just, man, it just happens. You got to put like one of those, uh, you know, those like uh, field type bubble games that you know people put the big old bubble suits on. Like Jimmy Ward, if he could play in one of those, would just be would be phenomenal. But in, at least in terms of this new safety signing and what the 49ers need, like you said, this is a, a developmental guy, with high high athleticism, legitimate stats and and performance at a impressive school like no one's looking at northwestern like that's you know some sec competitor but good ranking from pff nice little bit of uh scouting info there so like across the board it's sort of like a why not you know i mean if jimmy ward is constantly getting hurt and this is part of that sort of rotation that the 49ers have had in their defensive backfield like figuring out who's going to stick a new player comes in, obviously going to be a depth piece, and, and that will push the other players that were directly behind Jimmy Ward, specifically guys like DJ Reed when he's healthy and potentially Marcel Harris, and just like figuring out where these guys fit. Who's playing what safety role? Who will be that sort of middle-of-the-field cover three defender? Over the next you know, eight, nine months, the 49ers are going to have a very serious competition in their defensive backfield. They're going to have to evaluate better, and they're going to have to bring some more talent in, whether from the draft or uh, from free agency. There's still there's still room, and Jokowski Tart and his contract, and again Jimmy Ward, his like there's there's space both contractually and in terms of actual on field performance for really two new players to come in and perform. And Adrian Colbert will be thrown in that mix when he's healthy. But the 49ers, like they don't have an answer yet, and. Maybe this guy is at least in the short term it, and if nothing else, he's another guy to get to throw his hat in the ring. Yeah, I, I don't know that at least based on what he's been able to do thus far that he's going to be someone who challenges for much of anything, but maybe like special teams and, and some depth. So uh, that's, all, that's all I'm looking at him for right now, other than being on the 49ers all-name team uh, because he immediately vaults at the top, at least for the defensive backfield. Uh, lastly, let's go to the Bosa update. 45% chance 
at the first overall pick per per football outsiders at this point in the 49ers season. Uh, real quick, five seconds. You have the number one pick in the draft. Do you draft Bosa? Or if you get a trade down offer, do you trade down? I absolutely draft Bosa and I pull a I pull a Jake Long and I sign him before we even actually have to draft. Like let the contract come out. Everyone can know it. They need him badly. Yeah, I um I mean obviously it depends on the haul, but if I get if I get a similar kind of like two first, two seconds, two thirds, I trade down, man. I do. I trade down. Even if how that far, trading down is like How far would 12. you be willing to trade down? Like, uh, you got to trade the out question. the top 10. Do you do it? That's the question. Um, man, that's a tough one. Um, I think like 12 might be the furthest I'd go. Um, but I, I just don't think that like, if you draft Bosa, basically what you're saying is, I think this one dude, like I'm right about this one guy. And if you have instead six players, you could have like a 40% hit rate and still get two good players as opposed to one player with a chance of maybe being good or not. So it's, well, I'm sure we'll talk about it much more when we get closer to the draft, but it just wanted to get your kind of gut reaction there. Let's get to the game that's coming up this week. It's just in a couple of days. The Niners travel to the graveyard of 49ers quarterbacks, and that is Seattle, Washington at the clink at century link. It's the loudest stadium in the NFL, but Nick Mullins though has an iPod and he Apparently took the Colin, uh, he took the Colin Kaepernick "I'm the Man" commercial a little too far, and decided that he was going to listen to crowd noise and and practice the calls with crowd noise in his ears. And so now I guess the Niners are facing a Seattle team that is in the thick of the wild card playoff race, and it seems like even in down years, Seattle is always competing for a playoff spot, even if they're not competing for the division championship. Seattle is one of only two teams to have a winning record at Week Twelve. Every year since 2012, I will give you one whole guess as to who the other team is. The other team with a winning record at 2012, week 12. I'm going to guess a certain team from Foxborough with arguably the best head coach of all time. That would be exactly right. The New England Patriots, powered by the Legion of Massholes, uh, has been the only other team that has a winning record at week 12 every year since 2012. Uh, this is in large part to having an elite quarterback. I think Russell Wilson is sometimes underrated, but I think should be in the conversation as a top five quarterback. He has been playing very, very well this year. His deep ball is ridiculous. The way that he can make plays outside of structure is absurd. And and I think that has a lot, a lot to do with it because their defense is good, but their defense isn't as good as it was when they were challenging for Super Bowls every year. Their cornerbacks are not fantastic. Even though Shaquille Griffin's a, a great uh, I forget which one the cornerback is. Is it Shaquem Griffin who's the corner and Shaquille's the linebacker, right? Yeah. Shaquille is the corner. Shaquem is the linebacker. You had it right. Well, I had it backwards. Uh, but even though he's a good story, he hasn't been playing fantastically well. Uh, and I do think there are some things that can be exploited in that defense. But I think the 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 matchup that I'll be watching here in this game and, and what the Niners, I think, are going to need to do in order to win it's going to be, I think, on the back of Matt Breida. When you look at what running backs have done to the Seahawks, I mean, Christian McCaffrey just absolutely torched Seattle last week. He had a huge game. He And, and Christian McCaffrey at this point is, is good. He's number 22. Matt Breida's number 22. That's enough cosmic juju to say, you know what? Uh, we're going to go ahead and have something similar. The, the Seahawks have four straight games where they've given up a rushing touchdown. Uh, and they've given up 120 or more rushing yards 
three of their last four games. I think if the Niners are going to win, this is going to be one of those matchups make fights kinds of things. And the Niners can run the ball very well. I think the Seattle's going to go in and run the ball a lot. This game could be over in like 20 minutes, basically is what I'm saying. That would be, I think everybody would enjoy that. Like, I, I think if anything, you might, there might be like a, a sort of why has Matt Breida not getting, gotten even more carries? And he's starting to get, I think, more of like the bell cow. Like the, Alfred Morris's carries have gone down a little bit. But he, well, Jeff, he was even inactive last week. And Jeff, Jeff Wilson was Jeff active. Jeff Wilson was getting those carries. Yeah, and so like, there's a, a little bit of like, let's just ride this dude all day if we can. And I saw a stat Whoa, today. Yeah, that's that, rule number one of the drinking game, buddy. <laughs> that's, uh, that, that's, that's a drink penalty. <laughs> Uh, but I saw a stat today that uh, Matt Breida, it's a, it's a sort of an, a new advanced stat coming out, and I might butcher it a little bit, but essentially the stat is all is, is centered around running backs' abilities to gain yards after defenders are within a yard of them. So it's not necessarily yards after contact, because if you're a running back, you don't really want contact. So they're saying... Yard okay, after proximity? Yeah, it's, I think it's yard after close. Expected yards after close, I think it's EPAC um, or EY. AC or something like that. So EYAC. The, EYAC. Yeah. So the, the idea is that the the yards you create even huh, when I'm defenders are near you. Uh, Matt Breida, I think, has four point seven is was sort of the, the number thrown out there. He's in the top five with other guys like uh, Nick Chubb, Isaiah Crowell, and I can't remember the other names, but he was in the top I think he's in, in the top five and, and sits at fourth. But in you know, the the idea is that th- this dude is good. Like Matt Matt Breida might Next year, Matt the, is really good, man. The 49ers starting running back. I, I know they signed Jarek McKinnon to a major contract, but I don't know how with his play, like what you see him do in Shanahan's offense, and specifically, what, like there was a, a, an end zone shot of a run last week against Tampa Bay where he, he ran outside zone and, and he had everything you wanted to see in that play with the, the vision, the patience to let gaps open up, and then at the same time the the, the burst to put his outside foot in the ground and and get north and south. Like just everything yeah, he you're, does. You're is talking very about good. my tweets, Jared. You're talking he's, about my tweets. You're right. You're right. I am. It's, and it's just like <laughs> this guy is legit. He's he's really good. And uh, obviously, the the Panthers showed with Christian McCaffrey, who's good. That uh, this might be a recipe for at least competing with the Seahawks, whether the Panthers won or not. And the 49ers, like they don't have a whole lot else going for them. It's kind of like you might want to sap this tree for all it's worth. I I absolutely agree, and and it's not just because we identified Matt Breed on this podcast as someone that we really 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 liked, and, and that turned out to be something that was. Just it turned out perfectly for him, and he's taken advantage of every opportunity. But it's because he does play the game very, very well. I, I do think that when you look at next year, I think Shanahan's philosophy isn't that of a, a bell cow running back. He likes to distribute carries across the backfield and have different weapons and 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 deploy them in ways that I think are positive. And so, especially given I think Brita, the the, the concern with Brita is of course his frame and whether or not he's injury prone. And I, I don't think either of those things are true, but. I think it would help as a running back as one of the more brutal positions in football to, to have that load lightened by another player, I think would help a lot. So I think overall, all that goes to say that Matt Breed is playing very, very well. I think this could be a Matt Breed reception game. If what Christian McCaffrey did was any indication, I would be interested to see if we're going to see a lot of angle routes and a lot of option routes from the running backs on the linebackers in the middle of the field, because that's how... Cam Newton and, and, the, and the Panthers were able to succeed a lot against the Seattle defense. And so I'm curious whether or not we're going to see something similar from the 49ers. But I think the other person that I'm going to be watching is Dante Pettis because Dante Pettis had a fantastic game against the Buccaneers. I mean, his touchdown catch was 
ridiculously so filthy. good, so good. And, and I don't know that people had, recognize how good, like how good that is. Just the the shake at the line of screen is just all of it, very good. No, it was amazing, and he and he had several routes. I, I think uh, Ted and Wynn had a fantastic breakdown of him today in the Athletic. And, and he talked a lot about how even when he wasn't getting the ball thrown to him, he was still running very, very good routes. And the, his laziest route, unfortunately, was, I think, Nick Mullins' worst decision against Tampa Bay, which was that interception in the end zone mm-hmm. where he was on the backside and he just was he was trotting through the route. And Mullins throws the ball and you can see Pettis at the end go, oh, shit, and try to speed up and catch it. But at that point, it was too late and it was thrown into double coverage. So it, it wasn't going to end well. But. Dante Pettis is going to be matched up against Trey Flowers, who is better than the corner on the other side of him, but still not a fantastic corner. And I think this is going to be a very interesting test for Pettis because if he can succeed against Flowers and Mullins is, has enough time to look his way, uh, I think it could be interesting to see uh, what Pettis can do. So I think that th- there are some positive matchups for the Niners uh, against Seattle here. It's just going to be whether or not they can handle the atmosphere because the clink is, if nothing else probably one of the better home field advantages in the NFL. It is. And we're not used to having, you know, at least I think sort of we as the proverbial 49ers fan base, like used to having this discussion that a 49ers receiver might be able to legitimately go into century link and, and, succeed against Seattle cornerbacks that hasn't happened in quite some time so it'll it'll be exciting to see if Dante Pettis can keep this up now that he's healthy and obviously the development of wide receivers particularly the acceleration into the or you know the the transition into the NFL is difficult because the level of talent that you're seeing every single week is like the the best you might see one or two weeks in college and so Dante Pettis now seeing that every week fully healthy we might get a better idea of long-term what kind of receiver he can be in this offense, which I think is a pretty damn good one. Who do you think covers Kittle? Because Bobby Wagner is... Bobby Wagner, if he didn't play for the Seahawks, would probably be one of my favorite players in the... like my, my Actually, it doesn't matter that he played for the Seahawks because you have to be good to have a rival. So I guess like... Bobby Wagner, I think, is like the epitome of linebacking in today's NFL. He is he so is, good. He is the extension of Willis and Bowman. Like he is that player just playing for the opposite team. And he's playing at an elite level again and is the best linebacker in the league, in my opinion, currently. But you've got Barkevius Mingo and something called a Calitro as at playing weak linebacker for weak side linebacker for the, the Seattle Seahawks. Who do you think plays against Kittle? Because Kittle's having an all pro year, which by the way, go vote for him for the Pro Bowl. Yeah. And go vote and go vote for um Richard Sherman, because if he goes to the Pro Bowl, he gets paid. Hell yeah, dude. Spend Jed yeah. York's money. Yes. Do it. I'm all about it. Uh, but who do you think covers Kittle? I because think Mingo's not be... great, and neither's Galitro, but Wagner's a middle linebacker. I think it'll be really similar to how Tampa Bay did it, which was to really instead match up a lot of safeties, and really Kittle, at least in the Tampa Bay game, seemed to have a lot of uh, crossing routes going over the middle where Tampa Bay was passing him off, and I think that's essentially what they're going to have to do here. So I'm sure Bobby Wagner is going to be uh, identifying him early and, and particularly sort of in that low middle hole, but that'll be a lot of Kittle being the sort of player that they're that they're matching and bracketing and passing off more than any of the boundary receivers because he's the real threat for the 49ers. But yeah, Barkevius Mingo, the weak side linebacker, like the weak side linebacker you mentioned, those guys aren't covering Kittle. There's definitely that's definitely not a man matchup that Seattle wants and. and and I don't even know that that's a matchup that Bobby Wagner routinely wants because of what it then does in terms of lightening the box uh, or potentially lightening the box uh, for some of the misdirection runs that Kyle Shanahan can scheme up for Matt Breida. 
Yeah, I think Barkevius Mingo has shown that he's vulnerable in play action and he's vulnerable in coverage. I think if you're going to target someone, man, you're, that's the middle of the field defender you're going to target. And and Nick Mullins, again, if you're in the middle of the field, that's where he shines. If Once you get to the edges, that's where things get a little dicey for him. And, and so I think that that's probably where you're going to look to target is you're going to look to target maybe an angle route or a middle route. I think you're going to see a lot of the follow concept with Kittle and Brita uh, against Mingo. And, and yeah, we'll see. Because uh, McDougal's a, a pretty good safety. I mean, he's a good strong safety. He's not Cam Chancellor, sure. But uh, but he's played fairly well this year. Uh, and Thompson as well at the free safety spot, I think, has played. Uh, Tedrick Thompson, I think he's played well as well. So I think you're going to see, hopefully, a lot of underneath things. And, and that's where Mullins can play. And, and I think that uh, if the Niners are going to win, it's going to be because they're able to finally get a turnover. And, and they're able to kind of keep the chains moving and, and keep that run game going because I think Russell Wilson, um, man, that guy, I mean, he can make anything happen and he can just basically chuck it deep and, and get Tyler Lockett on a long bomb and, and, and see what happens there. Yeah, he's he's very good and it's hard to admit, but like you mentioned, you gotta have a you gotta you gotta have a decent team that can stack up if you want to call it a rivalry, and it's it's just really not that anymore. You think Sherman gets a pick this week? I don't think so. I think the Seahawks, quite frankly, it may even be sort of like a, a gentleman's respect. I don't think they're really going to go at him. Oh, I think the opposite. I think they will go oh, at him. Show him up, huh? <laughs> go up. Yeah, Welcome I, back. You're not that good. We did, that's why we didn't re-sign you. I don't, I don't think that, that Carol's going to care all that much. Um, and, and today in, in the press, Sherman was like, you know, I, I don't really, I'm sure my relationship with Pete Carroll will kind of get back to good effectively is what he was saying. Like he, you know, he's like Pete Carroll's done everything for the franchise and I'm sure we'll be fine eventually because effectively I think he's, he's done a good job. But when you think of Russell Wilson, he was like, I don't really have a relationship with Wilson. Um, it's not, it's not a thing. Um, I think that maybe that, that the team will, will want to go after him a little bit. And, and so I'm interested to see what happens. Um, and I think that he will be welcomed warmly in Seattle. He should be. He he should be. Yeah, he should be. Absolutely. So, yeah, it'll be interesting, I think. Uh, the Vegas line for the Seattle game is 10 points. It's a lot of points. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you think the Niners cover, or do you think it's a, another uh, Seattle blowout? I think it's another Seattle blowout. I, I just, you know, coming off a, a loss as bad as it was to Tampa Bay, you're on the road in CenturyLink, and, and obviously Nick Mullins can talk about his iPod and crowd noise as much as he wants, but it's not. It's not the same. Uh, and and the, the Seahawks are coming off a good game against uh, the Carolina Panthers, a good team, and the Seahawks managed to play well and uh, win. So I think that the 49ers, they're just not where they're at. I don't know that they're going to cover that spread. And I, I would venture to guess that they lose something like 27-14, uh, and that, even that seems maybe a little generous. Yeah, I, I just keep thinking to myself how absolutely ridiculous and odd it is for – Nick Mullins to sit on his couch with crowd noise blasting in his ear, yelling out 49ers plays while his girlfriend sits next to him. God, that's... like I've got a lot. I've got a lot of questions about this because that's how the article described it. And I'm thinking to myself, like, OK, girl, what are you doing? Are you reading a book? Are you are you knitting a cross stitch? Are you trying to watch Netflix? Like you clearly can't do anything with audio because he is barking. Yeah. Really, really long plays. These are 20 word plays. You know, it's <laughs> a whole and, whole soliloquy. Just yeah, top, exactly. Max it's like, is this is this Shakespeare or tomorrow's game plan? I don't yeah. know. So it's got to be something where the TV can't be on, Netflix isn't on, and, but she like can't go into the other room. Like they had just a really small apartment. 
Like, it, can she walk the dog? Do they have pets? Maybe they've got cats. Maybe they're cat people. These are all the things that go through my head when I think about him just barking out plays at full volume because he's got, you know, basically, you know, Dr. Dre's beats playing on the man in his ear in terms <laughs> of crowd noise. But, um, all right, dude. So I, I agree with you. I, I don't think they cover. I think it probably ends up being around 10 points. I think 1727 is probably about right. Um, oh, God. It's just, I'm, yeah. It's just, it's not going to be good. But, uh, but hey, it's championship Saturday. Texas is going to be in the Big 12 championship and hook them horns. That's all I'm saying. Because okay, that's cool. the team okay, that's cool. actually hook doing them. well. Uh, yeah. Although the Big 12 said, uh, no, you can't do the horns down, uh, which is stupid. That's so uh, weird. I, but it's dumb, man. As a Texas fan, I think it's stupid. <laughs> if you don't want Oklahoma to do the horns down, keep them out of the damn end zone. Yes. That's all I'm saying. Yes. That's all I'm saying. But. All right, Jared. Uh, thanks for another fantastic episode. Uh, Jared, where can I follow you on the Twitters? Follow me on Twitter at Jared Brown underscore. That's J-E-R-O-D Brown underscore. And we can keep talking about the 49ers and their uh, destiny approaching the first overall pick. And you can always follow me at Better Rivals. Uh, make sure to catch our merch on Public. The link is pinned to my Twitter profile. I will soon get off my ass and create elegant tank tank tops. Uh, I have the design mostly done because it's just letters and maybe a logo. Uh, and I think I'll have that done up soon. So check the, the store soon because you'll have some elegant tank t-shirts. But thanks again for tuning in. Uh, and as always, go Niners. Hello, I'm Spencer Hall from SB Nation, and I want to tell you about my new show, It Seemed Smart. It Seemed Smart is a show about people doing things that, for some reason or another, seemed smart at the time. Those things might include doing a little cocaine and driving a bike up a mountain, or, I don't know, maybe racing 100 miles per hour across the country in the middle of the night with no one's permission, or even stealing a bat from an umpire's room in a Major League Baseball park. Check it out, and if you like it, tell a friend. I'm Spencer Hall. Don't do anything smart.